0: Let's pray together. Father, your word is sitting before us like a great feast. We need now mouths to eat it. We need now souls that are ready to receive it. We pray that your Holy Spirit might help us to receive this truth as life to our souls, that we would not just hear it and so deceive ourselves, but that we would. Do what it says. Come and bring us closer to you. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, is the face of this week's ESPN magazine cover. And inside, the future Hall of Fame quarterback reflects and remembers in an interview what it was like to win the Super Bowl just a few years ago. He describes what it was like for the confetti to rain down on him and his teammates, how they took turns passing the coveted Lombardi trophy around. And after everything was done, he remembers going down into sort of the bowels of the stadium and then from there getting onto the bus and then driving with his teammates back to their hotel. He said sitting on the bus that night, he began to rewind and replay all that had happened in the game that evening. He replayed every play that he had played. In fact, that evening, he had thrown for 300-plus yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. His performance was so great, it had won him the MVP award. And he began to reflect, play-by-play, rewinding all that had happened that evening. And then, as he reminisced, he rewinded even further back. He thought all the way back to when he was just a scrawny kid in California how he had been passed over by Division I schools in college, how he had been drafted late into the NFL, how he had been backup quarterback to one of the legends in the NFL, how he had been booed when he first came onto the field to play as a starter. And all these things went back over in his mind all the way to this moment when he was wearing a Super Bowl ring MVP at the top of the whole thing. Sitting there in the bus in this week's article... He said at that moment, he felt something, quote, unexpected. He said, sitting there on the bus, it said that, it described it like a space had opened up inside him. And a jarring realization sprang into his mind where he said to himself, I hope I don't just do this. He went on to describe that suddenly he realized he was still looking for something, for a sense of clarity or purpose that was beyond his current line of sight. Can you imagine that? Being at the top of his game, at the top of your given field, achieving all there is to achieve, accomplishing all there is in your field to accomplish, literally having confetti rain down on your head and a stadium of people chant your name, And in that moment, feeling empty and feeling unsatisfied and feeling like this cavern had opened up in your heart. It's not just Aaron Rodgers. Tom Brady gave a similar interview. It was after he had won his third Super Bowl ring. It was before he was 30 years old, three Super Bowl rings, and he said, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still feel there is something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life, me. I think, God, it's got to be more than this. He was asked by the interviewer, what is it, Tom? What then is this thing? And he responded twice by saying, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. It's not just football players. Jim Carrey, the movie star, who you wouldn't expect to be especially profound, says something very profound. He says it perfectly like this. He says, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they had ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. You could keep going. Now, when you hear things like that, I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that goes, what is with these people, right? Uh, there's a part of us that thinks, maybe not consciously, maybe even just subconsciously, this quiet whisper inside of us that goes, I don't know what's wrong with them, but I can tell you this much. If I had what they had, I would not be like that. This quiet whisper in ourselves that goes, I wouldn't be like that, right? If I had the house they have, the life they have, the, the, the accomplishments they have, if I achieved what they achieved, I would not be complaining You would not hear me talking about feeling empty inside. You wouldn't hear me describing some kind of space in my soul. If I had blank, and I'll let you fill in the blank. I won't even give you suggestions. Two seconds in your mind. If I had blank, then I would be as happy as can be. I would be satisfied and fulfilled. I would have arrived. I would be content. It would be done. I don't know what it is, Seven Mile Road. But all of us have this belief that somehow we'd be the exception. The whole world could prove the rule, but we'd be the exception. I would be different. I would enjoy it. I would be satisfied. I would be whole. And it's at that point that King Solomon, in the passage we just heard from Ecclesiastes 2, would call out to us. If you have a Bible, turn it open to 553. This is Ecclesiastes 2. This is where we'll be this morning in the first 11 verses. And in Ecclesiastes 2, in verses 1 through 11, Solomon would say, I just have one thing to say to you. Excuse me, if you could hear me out, you will not be the exception. Solomon would say, trust me, I tried. I tried to be the exception, and it didn't work. Sama would say, I tried seeing all there is to see, hearing all there is to hear, smelling all that's pleasant to smell, tasting and touching all that you would want to taste and touch. I engaged these five senses of mine in life under the sun. I went at it without limit. And listen, my exploration into pleasure was not half-hearted. I went at it with all the resources and all my wisdom and all my might. And at the end, I'm telling you, it's vanity, it's hevel, it's vapor, it's breath, it's smoke, hevel. That's the word, if you were here with us last week, you heard the preacher say, and you'll hear it many times over in the book of Ecclesiastes, because the preacher says he surveyed all of life under the sun and concludes it's hevel, it's smoke, it's like trying to catch the breeze and put it in your pocket. That's what trying to see and make sense of and control this life is like. And yet Solomon throughout Ecclesiastes is going to try and resist that and try and find meaning. He's going to try and pursue satisfaction, try to find purpose. And this week he does it in pleasure. Look at 2 verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So basically what Solomon is going to do is he's going to run a test. He's going to conduct an experiment. In Ecclesiastes, he's going to pursue different things to try and find meaning, satisfaction, a point to life, and he starts with pleasure. If there's going to be some way off the treadmill, off the last week Sisyphus likeness of this life, well, maybe it's pleasure. And so he figures, as many in our day would say, the secret to life under the sun, if this life is here and then gone, if it's fleeting, if it's a breeze, then the secret to life is unbridled, unrestricted, unlimited hedonism. It's to go with all your might for all that feels good, and Solomon's going to go after it. And and hear me, as you hear these 11 verses, he's going to go at this varsity. He is, as the kids say these days, he's a baller. That's what he is, right? So here's what it says. Now, one thing. You won't even make it out of verse 1 before he gives you the conclusion. Meaning he shows his hand right from the start. He says, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? So Solomon says, I have to tell you up front. I'll let you walk with me through this. But I have to tell you right from the front. He he shows his hand to you. He lets the cat out of the bag. This, too, is smoke. It's empty and elusive and fleeting and ephemeral. he, He says, by the end of this, I was asking the same question as the beginning of this, which is, what's the point? Now, Solomon doesn't need you to take his word for it. He'll let you follow with him. So he explores pleasure to see if you come to the same conclusion he does. He starts first with the pleasure of alcohol. The pleasure of alcohol. Verse 3. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He starts with an easy place that anyone can go to find pleasure, to alcohol. And as he's giving himself to this, he's asking the same kinds of questions we would ask. He's asking questions like, can life be made better? Can can life be good if you just have, you know, a good aged wine or the right drink? He's asking deeper questions like, can it numb the pain I'm feeling? Can it help me escape, even for a little bit, the hevel that seems to keep coming in this life? Now listen, commentators will go back and forth as to almost examine how did Solomon drink, whether he drank excessively or in moderation. And the reason they say that is you can see in the verse itself, I kept my wisdom about me. And so some would say he drank this in a good kind of way. And some would say, but he gave himself to lay hold on folly, and so he drank excessively. And, and there's in the context, you can see Solomon barely restrains himself from anything in this. Right? So there's sort of two views. You you can on the one hand see sort of sophisticated Solomon. Sophisticated Solomon is sitting by the fireplace, and he's got something leather on. And he's got classical music playing in the background. And he's got a glass of Chateau I don't even know how to say it, I Googled it. (laughs) This really expensive wine. He's got a glass of that in his hand, right? High Society Solomon. He's got tickets to the ballet. He enjoys the opera. He goes to the theater. He drinks wine. He sips on expensive things. He eats caviar. That's highbrow, high society, sophisticated Solomon. And others would go, no, 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 what you have here is spring break Solomon, right? Spring break Solomon is different. He's doing keg stands and shots of cheap tequila. That's what spring break Solomon is like. He has turned the palace into Cancun. And spring break Solomon wakes up often in the morning with a hangover, and he's hugging the toilet. He's got a strange tattoo on his leg. He's got a fuzzy memory of what happened the night before. That's spring break Solomon, right? Now, a two-second tangent. Follow me for two seconds. I had written out a whole thing on a biblical vision of alcohol. And the reason I had that written out was because I think that I have not led well When it comes to this and how to think about it biblically. The reason I say that is we preached about alcohol the second week our church had ever launched. Two weeks after church had launched, we were preaching on Jesus at the wedding of Cana, where he turned Poland Spring, 150 gallons of it, into the finest Merlot you had ever tasted. And so we preached on a biblical understanding of alcohol. And in eight years since, we haven't said much of any of it in the passages of scripture. And in that, I would say For me, I I began to think the Bible speaks of alcohol, and it speaks of it as a gift of God for man. But like all of God's gifts, especially this one, it's a powerful gift. One that the Bible would expect needs to be handled with maturity and with wisdom. It's the reason why you wouldn't give a 10-year-old a license to a car. Because cars are wonderful gifts, but they're also powerful. And it requires a certain level of maturity and wisdom to handle it. And so, likewise with alcohol, the point of the scriptures would be, if you're going to receive this gift of God, it should be done with wisdom, with maturity. This is why I feel we have not led well. We've essentially given licenses to 10-year-olds without giving them a biblical vision for how to think through it. And so we want to do better on that. And so I want to know, for the sake of time, I'm not giving you my 20 minutes now, In a blog that will be up on the website or in a future sermon, especially because Solomon will talk about wine again, I want you to know that's coming. But if for today you have questions about that, how to think biblically about it, would you please come talk with me, talk to a pastor? We'd love to give you resources and point you in the right direction so that we are not these restricted, pent-up kids who have now been suddenly given license and live like fools. Two-minute tangent over, okay? Back to Solomon whether it is sophisticated Solomon or spring break Solomon, the point is Solomon knew how to have a good time. He did it right. When he partied, he partied. In fact, let me just read you one description of it in 1 Kings verses chapter 4. This is just one sort of soiree that Solomon would have thrown. It says this, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. That's today liters that would be in the tens of thousands. Uh, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle. By the way, I love that, that Solomon doesn't have GMOs in his diet. He is eating grass-fed beef and organic before that was even such a thing, right? So... He, he's got 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. And remember, that's one day's provision. Commentators estimate that this spread that Solomon would have put out in one day would have fed anywhere between 15 to 20, sometimes I read, 35,000 people. That's the spread that Solomon puts up in one day. One party, Solomon throws has 20,000 people at it. So, you know your backyard barbecue you had this summer? The really cute one where you told your guests to BYOB. Like, you couldn't even provide for them. They had to bring it, right? <laughs> Solomon would have said, you get an A for effort. That was so cute of you to do, right? When, when Solomon throws a party, 15,000 people show up. And the king puts out a spread that is everything that is from the top shelf, the choicest of foods, the finest of wines. He has the party of the century, except he has it every day. And yet Solomon would say, you know what? Eventually the buzz wears off. And eventually the anesthesia wears off. The numbness gives way to feeling. The very things I was trying to escape have this nasty habit of finding me. I couldn't rid myself of the hevel of life. And before you knew it, I woke up realizing hevel, hevel. It's all hevel. Solomon had drank in the pleasures of parties and alcohol. And he says with Tom Brady, God, I hope there's more to life than this. So he tries something else. The pleasure of having a great house with a great backyard. That's what I'm calling it. The pleasure of having a great house with a great backyard. Look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So Solomon sort of grows up. Right? You can't go on drinking like Spring Break Solomon all your life. you got to settle down. And so Solomon figures, here's what can make life satisfying. Tell me this doesn't sound familiar. Here's what we're after. Here's the good life. It comes in having the perfect dream house with the perfectly manicured lawn, living in that perfect, nice neighborhood. There it is. Now, I want you to hear, if you heard the description of Solomon's house, it's sort of this combination This combination, like if you took the vineyards of Napa Valley, and then the beauty of Longwood Gardens, and then the spectacular sights of Yosemite National Park, the forest that lay in there, and then a house from MTV Cribs and put it in the middle of the whole thing, that combined together is Solomon's place. In fact, did you notice that for Solomon, everything is in the plural? Did you notice? He doesn't build his dream house. I built houses. He didn't plant a vineyard. He planted vineyards. Everything has an S on it. He made gardens and parks and trees and pools. Everything for Solomon is in the plural. So Solomon doesn't have a house. He's got a summer home in the Mediterranean. He's got a cottage in backwoods of Nazareth. He's got a penthouse suite in the downtown of Bethlehem. He's got houses for his wives. Houses for his girlfriends, which we'll come to. He, and before all of this, by the way, he's got a palace right in the middle of Jerusalem. I built houses and planted vineyards and made gardens and forests and pools and trees. In fact, just to get you to see the sense of opulence of the whole thing, it took Solomon seven years to build the temple in Jerusalem, the house of God, which was breathtaking to see it took nearly twice as long to build his own house. Seven years to build the temple in Jerusalem that when Jesus' disciples looked at and they said, oh my goodness, this thing is amazing. 14 years almost to build his own palace. In fact, let me just read you one description of where Solomon lived. First Kings 10 verse 18 and following. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. So catch that. He's literally sitting on a throne made of ivory, covered in gold. And then 20 says, "...the like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house to the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon." For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. So Solomon would have come to your house. And you know, your couch, the one that you love, the one that's straight out of the magazine, that's so comfortable. Solomon would have been looking down at you, literally, literally looking down at you from his golden-covered ivory throne and said, that's so cute. And you want to go, Solomon, no, no, but this reclines and it's got these cup holders that I can watch the big game. That is so cute of you, right? And then maybe you would have took Solomon to the backyard. Your big backyard with that beautiful patio and the wonderful deck. And Solomon would have said, did I remind you that I have a zoo in my backyard? Literally, apes and peacocks are walking around in Solomon's backyard. This is Solomon's life. Solomon enjoyed all the pleasures that you could possibly squeeze out of having your dream house with the perfect big backyard. And Solomon would ask a question maybe some of you would already know the answer to. He would ask, can I tell you, I had the house, it looked just like it came out of the magazines, and do you imagine it left me satisfied, content, all my cravings gone, all my longings cured, I had finally arrived, and life was good, and there was nothing else bubbling up inside of me. Solomon said, "Hevel." Hevel of hevels, vanity of vanities. It's fleeting, it's ephemeral. You get there only to realize the vision you had worked so hard to achieve is now still further downfield because now you want more. And it's this treadmill you never get off. Vanity of vanities, it's smoke. So he tries something else. The pleasure of having wealth and possessions. Because after all, it's not just having a nice house. It's all the stuff that comes with it, all the stuff you can put into it. It's having all the good toys in life. So here's what he says, verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possession of herds and flocks, more than any who had been in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. You've gotten this already. You you can imagine But Solomon literally has more money than you could possibly account for. In fact, you heard before, in Solomon's day, silver was nothing. I mean, silver wasn't counted for anything that day because Solomon's cups, his mugs, were made of gold. Solomon had more money than you could imagine. He had so much money. In fact, there's some Old Testament calculations of it, numbers. I tried doing the math to convert it. It had so many numbers, it didn't even make sense to try and say it. Solomon had more stuff than you could possibly imagine. Here's the point. There is nothing Solomon wants that Solomon doesn't have. Nothing he sees that he doesn't buy. Solomon has everything that could possibly be had. Solomon has already ordered the iPhone X, pre-ordered it. He's got 10 of them. Apple sent him 10, right? That's that's Solomon. Except here's the difference. Because remember, he said, my wisdom stayed with me throughout it all. The difference is, Solomon who's wise enough to know, when I got the iPhone X, this excitement that I felt all the way up to it in my hand, this excitement that that I was convinced this is what I need, this is like nothing that has ever been before, Solomon's wise enough to go, I already felt that. In fact, I felt that when they came out with iPhone 7. And then I felt that before that, when they came out with 6. And then before that, when they came out with 5. I have been on this treadmill of feeling this every year since 2007. And Solomon's wise enough to go, and I know what's going to happen next year. And, and we're wise enough to know that too. And Solomon goes, this trick is old. Because next year will come another shiny package. And when it does, I am wise enough to know there is nothing new under the sun. It's Hevel of Hevels. It's smoke. It's vanity. Money bought Solomon everything except, as the saying goes, except for happiness except for something to fill that space, that cavern in his soul. And so Solomon found himself like Aaron Rodgers saying, something opened up inside of me. He tries something else, the pleasure of entertainment. Look at verse eight, the second half. I got singers, both men and women. Just pause there for a second. I listened to a sermon by this pastor named Josh Khoury that was so helpful in seeing some of these categories that Solomon is talking about. And in it, Josh Khoury points out, You know, back then, in the day when Solomon's writing this, you probably had singers in the temple. You might have had choirs gathering for worship. What you definitely didn't have was private concerts. There was no singers that you could hire, and yet for Solomon, he brought them to his house. I got singers, both men and women, so when Solomon threw a party, you didn't just get a party, you got a concert with it. So if you went up to Solomon and you asked Solomon, have you heard the latest Jay-Z album?" He would say no I haven't but but he's coming over tonight actually right and if you go what about Kendrick Lamar I have the album if you want to borrow it he says no he's coming tomorrow right but the, but you can you can come if you'd like I'm just inviting my closest 15,000 friends right this is Solomon's life he figures to himself maybe if I amuse myself the heaven will go away verse two was what's laughter it's mad what's pleasure what's the use So he's got comedians coming over, and he's got musicians coming over, and he's got entertainment. And yet, before you know it, there's only so much Netflix you can do a night. The Hevel returns. Solomon tries something else. Perhaps the most potent potent and powerful of all the pleasures, Solomon explores the pleasure of sex. Look at the last part of 8. After I got the singers, men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men, Solomon is notorious for his sexual appetite, for his sexual conquest. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Solomon gives himself to uninhibited, unrestricted, unlimited sex. There is not a fantasy that has happened under the sun Solomon didn't experience. He has a different lover every night of the week. And yet, as powerful and pleasurable as sex is, Solomon would say, it didn't fix the space. It, it didn't solve the hevel of life. Anybody who would talk to you honestly about giving themselves over, for example, to pornography, who struggled with that, would tell you, it's salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you become, and the thirst never goes away. What was once exciting has now grown, grown boring, It's fleeting. It's ephemeral. You can't crab it. It's like catching the wind and trying to put it in your pocket. The buzz wears off, and now you find yourself going to darker places, crossing lines you thought you would never cross to try and find the satisfaction that once came so easy. I I talked to someone outside of here recently who put it perfectly. He said to me, I found myself seeing things that made me want to throw up. And yet, like a dog returns to its vomit, we kept going back over and over and over again. Let me read you a quote. It says this, when sex is pursued only for pleasure and only for gain or even only to fill a void in society or in the soul, it becomes elusive, impersonal, and ultimately disappointing. And if you ask which preacher said that, Time magazine said that. Time Magazine says, when sex is used that way, it becomes elusive, it's disappointing. Solomon's word for that is hevel, it's fleeting, it's ephemeral, it's vapor. Time Magazine is catching up to what Solomon discovered in Ecclesiastes 2. Now listen, for the sake of time, we won't keep going, though we could. We could talk about the pleasure of being famous and admired and accomplished In fact, just look at verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. I would just have you know, no one on earth in Solomon's day was like Solomon. In fact, 1 Kings says literally the entire earth, quote, wanted to be in his presence. It says that when a queen from uh, far away came because she had heard about Solomon, when she heard his wisdom, saw his stuff, took it all in. It says she had to catch her breath. It was literally breathtaking. Breathless is how being around Solomon left you. His name had spread throughout the whole earth. I could tell you about the pleasure of being accomplished and famous and admired. And just in case, just in case you're thinking of a category that Solomon hasn't named, he's got one blanket verse to cover it all in verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Just in case you're going, I know what it is, he forgot to mention blank. Solomon has this blanket sentence to say, oh, by the way, I just don't have enough time to keep going in chapter 2. Anything my heart saw that it wanted I went after, meaning Solomon had a period of his life where he says, I never said no to any desire that bubbled in my heart. I never restrained myself from anything, and Solomon doesn't lie to you. He says, and while I was doing it, I had a ball. Did you hear that? He's not, he's being straight with you. He's not hiding. He's not speaking religious to you. He's saying, I had a ball while I was doing it because i went after everything these five senses could enjoy if it looked good or smelled good or tasted good or sounded good or felt good i did it had it ate it tried it solomon had it all are you Mile road getting a picture of who this man is like of who this man is one person said it well he said if bill gates the scientists Stephen Hawking and Hugh Hefner somehow morphed into one man, who was also simultaneously pope and president, that person might be called Solomon. That's who he is. If it was today, Solomon's face would be on the cover of Fortune. His style would be admired in GQ. His kingdom and his wisdom and its rule and raid would be praised in the evening papers and press. His home would be on the cover of Better Homes and Gardens. National Geographic would come just to take pictures of his backyard. When Solomon throwed a party, you could imagine celebrities would be there. Pop stars would be singing for his birthday. One preacher said supermodels would be dangling off his arms. That's Solomon. Because Solomon figures, if this brief, fleeting vapor of life is all there is, well then you might as well eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And listen, it may surprise you to know that the rest of the Bible, rather than chastising Solomon, In fact, even in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say, if there is nothing beyond the grave, Solomon's right. If there's no Jesus, no death, no resurrection, if when the lights go out, the lights go out, then eat, drink, and be merry. Except the New Testament has something to say of what happens after the lights go out. Solomon, you see, in our way, the way we'd say it is, Solomon went after the American dream on steroids. He went after Seven Mile Road, everything you and I, deep down subconscious, go after. All of our toil under the sun is for the very same stuff Solomon has already articulated, except he wakes up to see the whole thing was a nightmare. Verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and the striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Here's conclusion? I did it all, had it all, tried it all. It's smoke. Now here's my fear, said Maro. Would you hear me? My fear, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, right? Meaning this is in the Bible to make you wise to life. My fear is that we are going to be fools who do not heed this wisdom. My fear is that, I want you to hear me. I am not performing for you right now. I'm not putting on a show. I'm preaching. I'm not, my aim for the day is not that you would pat me on the back and go, that was a good sermon. I'm preaching God's word to you. My fear is that you would hear me and walk out the door and go, yeah, but I'm the exception. And you're going to continue living just like you lived, with all the stuff you're living for, as if this morning didn't happen except to tickle you. My fear is that we will be fools who do not hear God's wisdom. A house didn't do it for Solomon, but I'm different. It will for me. Wealth and sex and women and wine didn't do it for Solomon, but I'm different. And so the American dream will do it for me. I'm different because when I drink salt water, it quenches my thirst. I'm different than every other human being on the planet. I'm different than Aaron Rodgers, and I'm different than Tom Brady, and I'm different than Jim Carrey, and I'm different than Solomon. And all the stuff that rotted in them will satisfy me. I'm the exception to the rule, and so I'm going to leave here living for doing exactly what I did. My fear is that we will be fools and that it will take sad personal experience for you to learn what Solomon is offering you to learn for free. There's a saying, right? A wise man learns from his mistakes, but a wiser man learns from the mistakes of others three-fifths, four-fifths, five-fifths of my parenting is essentially that proverb. I'm pleading with my son, my little boy. I'm saying, dad messed up here. I'm, I'm telling you there's no life here. Dad failed in doing this. I'm telling you, son, don't do this, right? Five-fifths of my parenting is, please, a wise man learns from his mistakes. A wiser man learns from the mistakes of others, and I'm begging God that my little boy would not be a fool, but heed wisdom. That's what all Proverbs is. That's what Ecclesiastes is doing. Now, if you're here and you're going, see, I knew it. The Bible is against fun. The Bible is against pleasure. That's what this whole sermon is about. That's what Ecclesiastes 2 is about. Would you hear me for one time saying clearly from the scriptures, whatever you've believed from what you think about religion out here, would you hear me for a second? God is not against pleasure, There is nothing you enjoy that's good under the sun that God didn't think of and create. God thought of pleasure. God created sex. God created grapes that turned to wine. God created food. God could have made a world that was one food. He made billions of them. One fruit, billions of species. One color, billions of shades of color. He invented your body with the nerve endings it has, wired strictly for pleasure. No one is for pleasure more than God. God is for your pleasure. Except, if if I said to you, listen, I don't bang nails with my hand. It's not because I'm against hands. In fact, no one's more for hands than me, right? It's because I know that a hand can't do what only a hammer can. And if I try to do with a hand what a hammer is meant to do, I will mangle and destroy this thing. Rather than being satisfied in the completion of it, it will destroy the very thing that I was trying to use. God simply knows you can't find in things of earth what only can be found in God. And if you try, you will mangle and destroy it, and in the end, you will say, Hevel of Hevels. It's all Hevel, because what your soul is looking for can only truly and lastingly be found in God. Aaron Rodgers was right about the space in his heart. For the sake of time, I won't read it, but this writer named Blaise Pascal We mentioned him when we preached through Psalm 1, the man who had talked about everybody wants to be happy. He has this quote where he says, listen, the thing is, everybody wants to be happy, and yet, let me read you one last sentence of his quote. He says, but despite all the things we try to fill in it, but these are all inadequate because of the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. Before Rogers talked about it, Blaise said, there's a cavern. It's an infinite abyss in your soul. And sex is good, but it's not big enough to fill the abyss. And wine is good, and food is good, and wealth is fine, except it's not big enough to fill the abyss. There is an infinite abyss, and only an infinite God can fill that space in your heart. And I want you to know, Pascal was speaking from experience. Let me read you just one quote of Pascal's, and then we'll be done. Pascal had this experience one night with God. 10.30, I think, till 12.30 or so at night. He journaled it. No one even knew because he had stitched this to the inside of his jacket pocket. And only after death did they find that right by his heart was written this. He describes this experience with God. He says, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God, grandeur of the human soul, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, stitched over his heart. And my question for you this morning is, have you felt that? Have you experienced that? And if you're not a Christian, my prayer is that Ecclesiastes 2 would provoke you to a jealousy that says, I want that. I've tried the other categories. I want that. And if you are a Christian, my hope is to provoke you to jealousy to say, has it been a long time since fire and joy has flooded your soul when Jesus has gone from a dusty doctrine to a real person that you once met? Has it been a while since the love of your heart has been stirred, fire in your soul? Things have grown cold then I'm pleading with you that Ecclesiastes 2 would provoke in you a godly jealousy. Let me give you a testimony as, a pre- as, a, as your pastor. Not, I'm not preaching now. I'm just telling you my, my experience. I can tell you that I have had times where God feels so dry and distant to me, I would trade him for a cup of milk and a cookie. Meaning, I, I would take 99 cent value meal, some fries, and a football game over God. I think so little of him that I would trade time with the Almighty God for anything this world has to offer. Because to be honest, some fries can be more satisfying than God himself at the time. But I can also tell you, I have also had times. I have also had times where I sense God's nearness and God's presence. Sometimes in worship, sometimes by myself. And I have felt the true God, I have sensed the real God, the reality of the forgiveness of my sins has weighed on me, the hope of heaven in all its glory has lighted down on my heart in such a way that I can honestly say, in that moment I would tell you, there is nothing on earth I want right now. No one, nothing, nothing else I'd be doing, nothing else I'd be having, nothing that I want more than God, that's just my story for you. And I'm telling you, what are the things that stirs your love for God? And I'm not just talking about emotion in a way that you can dismiss me. What are, as the old Puritans used to say, the things that stir your affections? The, your whole being drawn back towards God? The nearness of God? The reality of God? Him not a doctrine? Him a person? What are the things that does it for you? Pursue those with all your might. With no guilt and no abandon, go after God. Put the whole weight of your being and say... All my longings and all my satisfaction and all my feelings I'm throwing onto you. You have to satisfy. Otherwise, I'm going to run onto something else. So please, meet me here. Desire God that way. Plead with God to experience him that way. And Samuel would say, that is not heaven. Go after God, delighting in God, experiencing God. Nothing in this world will satisfy you like Jesus can and will. Everything else is heaven." And if you said that, I think the preacher would look at you and smile and say, amen. That is exactly what I was hoping you would see. Let's pray together.